traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Get informed, get inspired, and get connected. CannabisRadio.com presents NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice. The National Cannabis Industry Association is the only national trade organization representing the businesses of the legal cannabis industry. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice covers a range of topics, including the rapidly evolving political and policy changes that affect our industry, news and events of importance to cannabis professionals, and features on companies, individuals, and campaigns at the cutting edge of the cannabis industry. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice begins now. Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in and welcome to NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice. I'm Michelle Rutter, and I'm the Government Relations Manager for NCIA, and I'm joined by NCIA's Director of Government Relations, Michael Correa. Hi, Mike. Hey, Michelle. It's been a little while since you've heard from the DC team, but that's because we've been really busy here. Uh, But we're very happy to be back and have you with us. Part of the reason we've been so busy is that we just finished our seventh annual Cannabis Industry Lobby Days, which were a huge success. We had nearly 250 NCIA members join us in Washington, DC, and we did over 300 meetings on Capitol Hill. And it was a really wonderful experience. So a big thank you to everyone who came and participated. Uh, And another update from DC, we also recently hired a third staffer here in our D.C. office, Maddie Grant, who's our new government relations coordinator, and I'm sure you all will be hearing from her in upcoming episodes. Uh, For this podcast, we wanted to talk about law enforcement and criminal justice as it relates to cannabis and even beyond. On today's show, we'd like to welcome Howard Woolridge and Neil Franklin, both of whom are involved with Law Enforcement Action Partnership, better known as LEAP. Howard is a lobbyist slash advocate for LEAP, while Neil serves as executive director for the organization. Neil, Howard, welcome. Um, Thanks for having us. I wanted to start off by learning a little more about your background. So, Neil, could you give some background? What made you become a police officer? How long were you in law enforcement? What were the reasons you started sort of advocating for reform? Sure. Well, I'm still trying to figure out why I became a police officer, but but I think it's because my brother led me into it. Uh, he went into the state police uh, a few years before I did. I saw what he was doing and figured I'd give it a shot. And 34 years later, I had an entire career. Um, most of my career was in either drug enforcement or criminal investigation and uh, arrested a lot of people for many minor drug violations. Although we were trying to go go after kingpins, at least that's what we were saying, we ended up with a lot of carnage, mainly, mainly marijuana smokers, as we were trying to climb this ladder into the world of kingpins. Didn't work so very well, but we left a lot of carnage in, in the wake. Make a long story short, near the end of my career, when I retired from the Maryland State Police after commanding multiple drug task forces in the state of Maryland, I started working for the Baltimore Police Department. Uh, in the year 2000, a good friend of mine, a narc for the Maryland State Police, Ed Totley, he had been doing that work for about, he was working with the FBI on a task force in October 2000, and he was killed 
by the guy he was trying to buy cocaine from. And that tragedy, that, that life-changing event for me, made me pause long enough in the work that I was doing to take a long look back and reflection upon the war on drugs, my involvement in it, and whether or not we should continue this disastrous policy, which created more violence and crime than you can ever imagine. And then in the wake of that, all the people we had arrested and lives destroyed. So that was the beginning of my transformation for the most part back in the year 2000. And then I started speaking for LEAP officially. I joined earlier, but I started speaking officially in 2008 and became the executive director in 2010. It'll be seven years this July. That's it in a nutshell, guys. That is uh, same questions to you. What got, what was your background? What got you uh, involved? I was a ride along with the Michigan State uh, University Department of Public Safety. They had a, a PR program and it seemed like a very interesting job. My major at the time was education. Um, I developed the interest through more ride alongs and eventually became a police officer 18 years uh, with a badge and a gun, uh, a 15 in patrol detective. Um, I always knew that the drug laws were ineffective, and as a patrol officer, I had a great deal of, of latitude, discretion, and I was able to throw away uh, several pounds of marijuana, one ounce or half ounce at a time, from people I stopped for running a red light or whatever. Um, my my uh, epiphany came when I was a detective and uh, doing follow-up on a home burglary, the, uh, they had lost their grandfather's pocket watch. I asked about that and the, the gentleman uh, slammed, the, slammed his fist down and said, you know, it's, it's priceless. You know, you can't, you can't replace it with money. And it was at that point I said, we should have different drug laws whereby the people who want crack cocaine or whatever, legally so they don't bother the good people who live in my, uh, in my city uh, near Lansing, Michigan. And from there, uh, once I retired, went down to Texas, uh, uh, a gentleman called from the Drug Policy Forum of Texas and convinced me to become a member and then the speaker. And from there, I went to LEAP in 2002. So I have sort of a two-part question for you all. And Neil, we can start with you and Howard. I'm happy to hear what you have to say too. But first, I want to ask, how was LEAP founded? And secondly, uh, your group was formerly known as the Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, but the name recently changed to the Law Enforcement Action Partnership. So what made you all change the name? Well, Michelle, um, let me get Howard to give you the uh, how the original leap was formed in 2002, since he was one of the original. Back in 2002, uh, MP put out a grant, a grant, uh, proposal for any group of police officers, uh, law enforcement types who would come together and advocate for the legalization regulation of all drugs. Uh, at that time, I only knew Peter Christ uh, up in New York, and but he knew Jack Cole and somebody knew John Gator and uh, um, somebody knew Dan Solano in Detroit. So in 2002, there were only five police officers who, who uh, wanted to end the drug war. We came together on to leap in the spring of 2002 we received the grant money from mpp and we launched ourselves as law enforcement against prohibition later we added all law enforcement folks not just uh, police and this continued for many years until uh, we had uh, neil franklin come on board and this eventually led to the change of name and um direction so neil so, how did how did you get involved in leap then 
So when Leap was first formed, as Howard said, in 2002, it was a year after. Um, remember, back in 2000, uh, I lost my good friend, Ed Totley, to the war on drugs. So I started my journey of research and trying to figure this thing out. But in 2003, as you're looking for others who think the same way you do or starting to challenge these policies, on this new website, I found LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. So I reached out to them, had a little bit of a commission, uh, but I was still a very active law enforcement and got a little busy with other things. But then again, in 2008, Jack Cole, one of the co-founders, reached out to me again and said that he was coming to Baltimore where I was policing at that time and uh, asked me if I would meet with him. So from that point forward, that meeting uh, and spending a day with Jack Cole, that's when I decided, yeah, I need to be an official speaker for LEAP and that's an official speaker. And moving forward real quick regarding your initial question about this transformation that we've recently made in changing the name to the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, we saw as we continue to peel back this onion of the war on drugs and this disastrous policy, you know, of course, we knew that it was the foundation for a lot of the gang violence that we were having, the cartels and their influence. Um, we, we knew it was, uh, you know, responsible for an increase in disease with HIV and, and hepatitis C transmissions. And, and, and uh, of course, the numbers of people that we we're arresting. But we also started this onion, the, 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 the separation between police and community and the unconstitutional stops, which led to a lot of that. You know, the, the whole Richard Nixon war on drugs and what that was really all about. It wasn't about drugs at all, as, as John Ehrlichman was quoted in saying. You know, they knew it wasn't about drugs. It was about inf infiltrating the Vietnam War protesters and blacks during the civil right, rights movement in, in homes and groups and then vilification on late night TV. What I'm saying is we started to learn so many other things of how things inter intertwine in criminal justice as a whole and the downfall of criminal justice. Um, we decided that by changing the name and by broadening our platform to deal with police community relations, to deal with harm reduction, to deal with drug policy, to deal with global issues, and to deal with criminalization and incarceration, we realized that we could reach more people, that we can meet more people where they are into this place of, of drug policy and its influence, negative in society. And we relaunched in January under the new name, broadened the platform. And my God, it's, it's just been wonderful because now we're able to meet people where they are and then start the conversation there and then move it to this very problematic place of drug policy and then on to solutions. Because remember, if you look at the, if you look at the tagline of our name after the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, it says advancing justice and criminal <clears throat> advancing justice and public safety solutions. So we're solution oriented and figuring this thing out. Where do we go from here? Well, it certainly sounds like the name change has been a good thing for you guys. So I'm glad to have that, hear that. Um, so I know we're just getting started, but we're going to take a short break. But when we come back, we'll be joined by Law Enforcement Action Partnerships Advocate and Lobbyist Howard Wooldridge and Executive Director Neil Franklin. So don't go away. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice will return once we give a voice to our sponsors. Are you disturbed by the prescription medication commercials on television and their endless list of side effects? They go on and on and you end up having to take multiple pills to counteract the problems caused by the first pill. It never ends. Have you looked into CBD as a more natural option? 
At Saturn Ranch, we produce all-natural CBD topicals and THC-infused edibles. Premium lab-tested hemp-derived CBD is the most important ingredient in our products. From topical bombs, salt scrubs, bath-soaking salts to tinctures and edibles, you're sure to find something to help. Family-owned and operated, we at Saturn Ranch believe in and use our products daily. Don't put anything on your body that you wouldn't put in your body. SaturnRanch.com The Cannabis World of Tomorrow converges for the first ever Southeast Cannabis Conference and Expo in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, June 9th through the 11th. Register right now at seccexpo.com. TV talk icon Montel Williams, NFL All-Stars Ricky Williams, Marvin Washington, and Kyle Turley lead some of our top-tier panels in industry information, athletics, real estate, technology, medical research, and more. Meet hundreds of vendors and thousands of entrepreneurs at the 2017 Southeast Cannabis Conference and Expo in Fort Lauderdale. Last-minute registration is open now at seccexpo.com. The next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Vuber vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Vuber vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee. Experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be, the Vuber way. Get informed, get inspired, and get connected with more of NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice, only on CannabisRadio.com. We're back from the break, and thank you for tuning in to NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice. If you're just now joining us, I'm Michelle Rutter, and we're here with Law Enforcement Action Partnerships Advocate and Lobbyist Howard Woolridge and Executive Director Neil Franklin. Thanks, Michelle. Um, Howard and Neil, the U.S. spends, I think it's over $50 billion a year on the war on drugs and how are those dollars spent now and where do, where would you see that money going if cannabis is taken out of the equation sure uh, howard um if how are you if you could tell a little bit i know you've done so much work in in dc on this and and if you and i know you keep your eye on the uh on what's happening now with the off, office of uh drug policy and control the greatest expenditure for American society on the issue of, of uh, cannabis prohibition is the misallocation of police resources to look for, uh, arrest, and prosecute for the for God's green plant. And the statistics never tell the whole story, as always, because, uh, one, we can say that oh, 600,000 people were arrested for cannabis last year, but what people don't know is that we spend extra millions of hours searching cars and when we don't find anything to arrest for, that statistic is lost. So my analysis is we spend in the United States still roughly 10 million, 10 million police hours looking under people's front seat, stop and frisk, et cetera, looking for God's green plant. And this reduces our time to look for other serious public safety threats like the common drunk driver, uh, pedophiles who are in social media at the federal level wonderfully trained DEA agents and FBI agents chasing a green plant while terrorists plan another Christmas party surprise. So all the, although the money is important, I estimate about a, it's about 11 billion a year, B-boy billion a year uh, by local, state, federal chasing the green plant. For me as a law enforcement professional, it's the non-arrest of other threats to our children and society in general 
that makes me go to work every day. You know, from just real quick, on a, on a state level and what we're seeing in the shift of, of, of money, first of all, this is not a new industry, marijuana. We're taking it from a place of illegality and we're bringing it to a place under the law to operate under the law. Let's take a quick look at Colorado and what's happened recently as far as money goes. Um, first, let me begin with the money that's being generated in the industry itself. In the first 10 months of 2016, a billion dollars was generated in that marketplace. That's a billion dollars, first of all, that didn't go into the hands of the cartels. It didn't go into the hands of neighborhood gangs and crews. It went to the hands of leaders who put people to work, who pay taxes, and then and that can be used to improve the community. That money, a lot of that money that's now being paid in taxes has is, is been, been earmarked to go into educational programs, to go into harm reduction programs, to go into treatment programs, to go into community-based programs to help improve the community, do things for kids and, and help people with addiction issues. It's serving in the community in a really, really good way. And that's going to continue to evolve. It's going to continue to grow. But as Halbert was giving that law enforcement perspective, you know, when you're taking a billion dollars in 10 months out of the hands of criminal enterprise, let me tell you, folks, that's a good day. I wanted to talk about the Justice Department and uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions has uh, picked Steve Cook uh, to help Oversight Department Task Force developing policies to fight violent crimes in cities. He went to AP talking about his views and he says this theory that we have embraced since the beginning of civilization is when you put criminals in prison it's really that simple i want you guys to go back in a time machine and when you were officers did you actually believe that then and do you believe that now well he's, he's kind of right but he's hugely wrong also See, because first of all, we call anyone who who violates any of the laws that we put in place criminals. And unfortunately, we've made laws that that really don't make a whole lot of sense and have caused a lot of people to be criminals, like people who want to smoke marijuana and, and people who do other things that we see as morally corrupt. It doesn't mean you're a criminal. So putting violent people who are preying upon other people in prison, such as rapists, yeah, crime goes down, okay? Because if you don't catch them and put them in prison, prison people who are preying upon our kill, kids, it's pedophiles and so on, yeah, they'll keep doing it. But putting people in prison who are marijuana users, you know, who are not otherwise criminals by these laws that we put in place, actually make our communities more dangerous. You see, because you disenfranchise more people and we put far more people in prison for using marijuana, for using other drugs, who are addicted to other drugs than we do, who are raping, you know, who are co committing murders. And when those people return home and they can't find a job and they have to pay their bills, unfortunately, many people become very discouraged and get very stressed out and they stay in a place they or move or migrate to a place of criminality. And while they're in prison. They learn the, the tricks of the trade. They have to become violent in order to protect themselves while in prison. And then how does, does that affect them when they return home? So in a nutshell, he's hugely wrong. The more people we put in prison, especially nonviolent folks, the more dangerous our communities become. You have any thoughts, Howard, on that? 
Yeah, this morning I had three uh, presentations to congressional staff, and I've talked to over 4,000 since I arrived. I tell them all the same thing, and no one has ever disagreed. Every drug dealer ever arrested, shot, or killed has been replaced immediately. And that's why drugs are readily available to our kids per DEA literature. So the, the effectiveness of any drug bust is 0, 0.0. And that's one thing, at least at the staff aid level, and now with many congressmen I've talked to, um, they understand that what the police are doing is absolutely meaningless in terms of keeping drugs and drug dealers away from the children of America. And that's why in Congress there's a growing consensus that we need fundamental changes in our system and uh, LEAP and other organizations, of course, are out there every day pounding the halls to uh, send this message out that uh, we need to end this uh, federal prohibition and start having policies which are based on science rather than emotions. So let's talk a little bit about civil asset forfeiture. Um, can one of you memory of what it is to our listeners, what civil asset forfeiture actually is, and the effects that it ends up having on communities? So you have two types of, of forfeiture as it relates to uh, what we would say um, the government taking your money or your property. The first one is, is criminal forfeiture. So if you're committing crimes and you're making money off of that activity and you have tools of the trade and then the police come and they arrest you for that criminal activity and they take into evidence those tools of the trade and the money that you've generated and seized your bank accounts where you're storing these funds and so on and that's evidence for your trial and so on and then you're convicted then that money is forfeited it goes to the state basically to the citizens to the general fund or wherever to be used by the state. That's one. And most people don't have a problem with that. Then you have civil forfeiture, which uh, where the government can suspect you or even think that you're involved in criminal activity, take your money, take your property. They don't have to charge you with a crime, don't have to convict you of a crime. But then the burden is on you to prove that your money or your property, not you, your money or your property is innocent of being involved in any type of or affiliated with any type of criminal activity. Um, now, so there are basically two types of people when it comes to civil forfeiture, and, and it's those who hate it, and then there are those who don't know what it is. Once you learn what it is, you've got to hate it. Because there's no way in the world a cop should be able to stop you driving, find out that you have $5,000 in your glove box, seize that money, and then make you prove that that money is innocent of criminal activity. That is un-American. You're right, it is. Um, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll be joined by the Law Enforcement Action Partnerships Advocate and Lobbyist Howard Woldridge and Executive Director Neil Franklin, so don't go away. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice will return once we give a voice to our sponsors. Oh, let the marijuana llama tell you something now About a game for your phone gonna make you say wow The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash Grow the seeds, sell the bud, put the savings in the stash Little by little your empire grows large Put the big celebrities inside your entourage You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Chichin Chong Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong The name of the game is Hemping, that's the point Download and play while you light yourself a joint 
cannabis should be no crime. Hemp Inc. is even hot-proofed by the man who run high times. Oh, yeah. Get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Llama out. Got to tend to me on crops, you know. Money don't make itself. Hemp Inc. Hi, I'm Montel Williams. Most of you know me as a talk show host, but I'm also an author, actor, single father of four, avid snowboarder, and I'm also a medical marijuana patient. Living with multiple sclerosis, I'm in pain every day. Medical marijuana is my last resort, and it helps me when all other drugs have failed. If you'd like more information about medical marijuana, you can contact the Marijuana Policy Project at mpp.org or call 1-877-JOIN-MPP. Equio, New Frontier's cutting-edge big data platform, puts the information and answers you need right at your fingertips in real time to help you more effectively run your cannabis business. Go to www.equio.io to sign up for your free membership today. Again, that's www.equio.io. Run with New Frontier and let us help you conquer the wild. Get informed, get inspired, and get connected with more of NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice only on CannabisRadio.com. We're back from the break, so thanks for tuning in to NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice. If you're just now joining us, I'm Michelle Rutter, and we're here with Law Enforcement Action Partnerships Advocate and Lobbyist Howard Wooldridge and Executive Director Neil Franklin. Thanks, Michelle. Uh, I just wanted to ask, so uh, a lot of uh, law enforcement gets their money from chasing this plant. I'm curious, and we have a lot of people who, like you guys, who actually see the light and change. But I think if you were to take a poll of uh, current police officers, what percentage? I mean, do you think police officers support this? you think they really understand this, but it is just a, a game, it's survival, it's jobs? Or do you think they really don't believe in the message you guys are talking about. Let me just say from my perspective, uh, having ridden my horse across America twice at six miles an hour, I've talked to uh, over 100 police officers out in the middle of Kansas or Utah or something. And when you get them alone, I'd say close to half the police officers in this country, the street cops, not command, uh, are ready to treat marijuana like beer, legal, regulated, and taxed. The trouble is with the profession is you say that when you're still active duty, it's career suicide, uh, and you will be, if not punished, you will certainly be ostracized by your colleagues and command. So it's very dangerous to speak out. But we understand the relative problems that the use of marijuana causes, which is 0.001 compared to uh, alcohol. And we would rather chase serious bad guys versus God's green plant, but command puts uh, pressure and stress on the road officers to produce the stops, do the searches, get the money on those civil asset forfeitures, um, and make the federal government look look happy as far as getting more money. Because if you arrest more drug dealers, you get more money from the federal government. There's a reward system. Uh, and I just want to add that that that, uh, that highway robbery, also known as civil asset forfeiture, is a deep, dark stain on uh, our profession and uh, we need to get rid of it uh, as soon as possible. What about, um, what can the cannabis industry, the businesses, uh, do to help your cause? Well, I think there are a couple of things that they can do, but one importantly is as you're moving forward, as you're opening up your companies, 
And as you're putting your product, developing your products and putting them out there, be very cognizant of, of our, our young people, of our children. Um, and I, and most of the complaints that I'm hearing from the community as I do this work across the country is that why is it necessary you know, to put uh, cannabis products in packaging that is attractive to children? Why, why is it necessary to have uh, cannabis products and call them gummy bears and so on? You know, the, if these are for adults, and I think that we all agree that cannabis is for adults, unless, it's, unless we're talking about medical use, and then you, you're getting the, the, the proper guidance for using it for, for young people. But, you know, we call this an adult use market. Then let's, let's treat it as it is an adult use market. And let's do things responsibly. You know, let's let's market it responsibly. Let's introduce it to the community responsibly. And as we open up our shops and our stores and our grows, let's be a wonderful addition to the community. Let's help. Let's do things to help improve the community. Let's make sure that we're doing the right things to educate people about the facts of cannabis, what it does, what it doesn't do. And let's, you know, let's let's be interested in doing those things first. And if you do those things first and do those things right, then the money will come. But please be responsible uh, with your products. So, Neil, you just touched on this a little bit, but I want to know how can people get involved and contribute to your efforts? You just talked about being a good educator and a responsible educator. But what else can people do? Talk to your friends, talk to your family, you know, talk to those within your circles who are not familiar with the plant, who are not familiar with uh, this changing industry. Um, Really, at the end of the day, what I see what is most important with this transition is education. Uh, We think that people are informed, but people aren't informed, mostly our elected officials. So you've got to reach out to them. You've got to be active in reaching out to those that represent you at the state, federal, and local levels and educate them. Don't do it in an aggressive manner. You know, don't, don't be uh, aggressive about it, but just give them the information they need. Let me add to that, that at, at the federal level, in the sandbox I play in every day, we in reform are pushing on this particular topic a 10th amendment states rights approach so please when you talk when you talk to you write to you go to a town hall meeting with your congressmen or us senators emphasize uh and ask the question why will you not or why will you support a 10th amendment states rights approach to cannabis there should be a state level decision And um, ask them that question, because that is what's important here in in Washington, D.C., because we know that once the federal government gets out of the way uh, with their federal prohibition, many states, I would say in the dozens, would legalize, regulate tax in a big hurry. But it's the federal stumbling block that is preventing a lot of this and making us go state to state. And that's why we need more pressure for our federal folks to apply that that 10th Amendment so we can break this loose all over the country. 
Well, that's all the time we have for today, but I would like to say a big thank you to Neil Franklin and Howard Wooldridge of the Law Enforcement Action Partnership for taking the time to talk about this important issue with us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. And to our listeners, don't forget that NCIA's fourth annual Cannabis Business Summit and Expo is just around the corner, happening in Oakland, California on June 12th through 14th. We're expecting well over 4,000 attendees, and we hope to see you there. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.